0: Just, just in case some of you are like, I don't need to fill anything out. I've been going here since longer than Eric was alive. So the reason we're doing this is we are trying to completely redo our entire mailing list, all of our communication stuff. We want to make sure we have the correct information for you. We want to make sure that we know where you're already serving so that we're not calling you and saying, Hey, get into a small group. And you're like, I've been in a small group since longer than you've had children, Eric. So if if you have been he coming here for decades, if you've been coming here for just a couple of weeks, please make sure you grab this and fill it out. We're going to keep reminding you until you've all done it. All right. And if you can do one per couple, so my wife is taking care of it for me. Done. All right. Awesome. You guys doing well? All right. Well, for those of you who are, are uh, just visiting or something, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here. Really, really glad that you're here. I was thinking this week, like, you know what I hate? And I know that that's probably a harsh way of putting it. So, but One of the things that I have a really hard time not hating are when, when people hurt my kids, right? I mean, I don't, I don't care what you do to me. You can talk bad about me. You can, you can try to physically accost me. You can even pay with a check in the checkout line in front of me. And there's heaps of forgiveness and I'm gentle, but if you hurt one of my kids, particularly if you hurt them intentionally or you disregard my son when he's hurting and you are going to wake a sleeping bear that a lot of times I don't even know is in here. Okay. But the opposite is true as well. If You want to love me, really love me. Well, you love on my kids. And so the last couple of months, as the summer, the water's been warm. We've been going down to the beach. My buddy Jeff, who loves to fish, has been bringing his fishing rods or fishing poles, depending on how you like to put that. Um, And he's been bringing his rods down, and he's been throwing them out into the water near us. And then, of course, my sons tend to gravitate right towards where the hooks are in the water. And as soon as he catches something, as soon as he hooks in, he'll call one of my boys and say, Come here, Grayson. And Grayson will get to reel it in. And both of my boys have caught their first fishes this summer. Fishes? Fish? I'm not quite sure. Fish, whatever. You know. Um, I only teach writing at Vanguard University. You know? I don't, it's not like I go to like UCI or something. Just saying. This is the whole Vanguard section up front, and they're like, oh, seriously? Step off, right? Because at this point, it's a good thing you're not hurting our children because we would be coming after you. So... You know, so the, each of them have caught their own fish for the first time. And to see the look on their face, it's as if Jeff has helped me catch my first fish. So, you know, you want to you wanna hurt me, you hurt my kids. You want to make me mad, you hurt my kids. You want to love on me, love on my kids. I just wanted to get that out of my system. That has nothing to do with anything other than I just wanted you to know. So anyway, we are in a series that we are calling... True, uh, uh, True North was the last one. We're in a series we're calling Brand New. This is one of those mornings, so just bear with us. Brand New. And the point of this series is to look at the brand new thing that Jesus came to inaugurate. It was radically different from the the religious approaches that had dominated the world up to that point and, quite honestly, continue to dominate religious expression. doesn't matter what faith you are in. It pretty much wraps up in that there are sacred places where you supposedly can get closer to God if you're there. And within those sacred places, there are sacred people. More often than not, they're men. And those sacred people have access to the sacred texts. And because they are the only ones who have access to those texts... They get to tell all of the sincere followers how they can have relationship with God, how they can be on the right path. And so because of that, they have an unbelievable amount of power to influence how people worship and how people live. But of course, Jesus said, That's, that is not what I have come to, to perpetuate. I'm not interested in Temple 2.0. I'm bringing something radically brand new. It's not going to be about places. It's going to be about people. And the person to your right and to your left is always, to me, far more sacred than any plot of dirt. And this is going to be a movement, not a place where we're building monuments, but a movement of people who are known, not by their rule following, not by their ability to follow the law, but by their ability to love. That's how people are going to know that they are my followers and that they are reflecting my heart. And for the first few hundred years of the early church, that's what the body of Christ, the the, the followers of Jesus were known for. They were an outlawed sect that was perceived as just simply a sect of Judaism. So they didn't even have buildings. They didn't have cathedrals that they could go to. And yet, even though they were on the periphery of society, they were still known for their love. They were known as being the kind of people that when they were sick, they would move towards those people even if they weren't Jews themselves, even if they weren't Christ followers themselves, they would still move towards them and love on them even if it meant getting sick themselves. They were the kind of people that when they saw children that had been abandoned in the streets, they would gather them up, take them home, and raise them as their own, not because it would benefit them, not because they were going to sell them into slavery as some people in that society would do, but simply because it was for the best interest of that child. They were the kind of people who actually loved one another, cared for one another, bore with one another's burdens, and so on and so forth. And because of that, people took note. And the community of Christ followers, even though it was an outlawed group, it was an outlawed faith, they continued to grow. And they continued to have quite uh, an influence in society. And then, sometime around the 4th century, about 320 B.C., The Emperor Constantine, as we saw last week, grabbed hold of this movement, this beautiful movement, and thrust it right into the center of the Roman Empire. And he said Christianity is now not going to simply be a legalized religion. Christianity is now going to be the religion of the Holy Roman Empire. Of course, as we saw, the the Roman Empire was far more Roman, far more empire than it was holy. And because of that... Although it was never intentional, Christianity began to build its own brand of the temple model with its own sacred places and its own sacred hierarchy of people. They took all of the letters and and gospels and they bound them together and they chained them to the altar so that only the sacred people within, within those sacred places could ultimately interpret them for all of the sincere followers. And then we saw how later on um, the reformers who came along who were very devout Christ followers and who really didn't want to, you know, throw the church out. They said, we want to simply help the church reform its ways, get kind of some of this temple model thinking out of the way. And so they said one of the best ways to do that is to take the Bible out from the temple and put it into the hands of the people so they can read it for themselves. We're going to take the Pope off of the throne of this is the most important person to speak into how we're supposed to live. And we're going to insert the Bible as the text by which we determine whether how we should live. Wonderful, important step towards rehabilitating the church. However... One of the things that gets in the way is that the people, we, were already so ingrained with this mindset that it's about being right, that having right thinking trumped right action, that they read those scriptures and they interpreted them in a certain way, and then they began to divide over theological matters, and in the process of doing that, love got lost, even though the heart of the gospel, even though the heart of the law was ultimately to try to preserve relationship both between God and one another. In the process, people's interpretations of the law ended up with schisms of the church where you have 10, 20, 100, and ultimately over 1,000 different denominations simply because, not because people loved differently, not because some people loved better than other people, because people thought differently. And Jesus said, listen, this is not what I have come to inaugurate. What I had in mind is something radically different. And by the way, we are not the first people to have misinterpreted the law. We're not the first people to have run into a different perspective and Jesus having to like set people straight. So if you've got a Bible today, because what I want us to see this morning is the heart of what Jesus was trying to get at, where he was trying to drive this home. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in your seat backs in front of you. Go ahead and grab one and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. So when we start talking about the temple model and we start talking about interpreting texts differently. Jesus did that quite a bit. Jesus recognized that the people, the religious elite of his day, had in many ways completely missed the heart of the law. They had focused on the letter. This is what it says. This is how we're supposed to live. And he said, okay, you got that. But you've missed the heart of why God put those in place in the first place. They were to preserve relationship vertically and horizontally. And because he began to reinterpret get back to the heart of some of these things he came into the greatest conflict as if you read any of the gospels you'll notice this he came into the greatest conflict not with non-believers but with the religious elite of his day the power brokers the sacred people within the jewish hierarchy those are the ones he came into greatest conflict with And and because they viewed him as a rabble rouser that was trying to change the status quo, they said, we've got to do something about this guy. We need to shut him up, shut him down, get him out of the way. How can we do that? Well, they said, well, probably the best way to do that is to catch him saying something that would completely undermine his credibility with the people. Because we don't think he is who people are saying he is. We don't think he's that Messiah that we've been waiting for. He doesn't look anything like the Messiah we've been waiting for but the people sure think so. So we can't just say he's not and get rid of him. We've got to turn the people against him. We need to catch him in his words. So time and again, they tried to catch Jesus in his words. In chapter 22 of Matthew, we see several of those examples of ways they were trying to catch him. Hey, Jesus, they all, they gather together. There, there were a lot of different groupings of these religious elite. You had the Sanhedrin, kind of the ruling party. And then you had the Pharisees who were the theological experts. You had some Herodians who were like, hey, the best way to, to get along with Rome is just go along with them. Let's not fight it. And so you have all of these groups of religious elite and they couldn't agree on anything except that Jesus was a danger to the status quo. So they come together and they start figuring out ways to undermine his credibility. And and so they start throwing out the theological arguments of the day and posing questions that force Jesus to take a side. They're trying to gore him on the horns of a dilemma. Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Right? Because the law says we should. But Caesar is the head Of a country that has conquered us and is now sitting over us, domineering over us. So should we, as God-fearing Jews, pay taxes to this pagan king? Some of them would say yes. Others would say no. Jesus, what do you say? Or Jesus, a woman, has a husband. He dies. And then she gets married again. He dies. And they do this six, seven times she's got all of these husbands and then finally she dies and she's in heaven during the resurrection. Who's her real husband? Now, you, you wouldn't know it from looking at that, but what was really going on underneath the surface is that there is a group of individuals, the Sanhedrin, who doesn't think that there's a resurrection at all physically, that it's all about life now. And then there's a group of Pharisees who are like, absolutely there's a resurrection. What are you talking about? So Jesus, pick a side! Make somebody angry, make another group happy, pick a side. And each time that they asked Jesus a question, he recognized they were trying to stumble him and he would answer the question in such a way that it completely reframes it and gets all of them, not just one party or another, but all of them to begin realizing that they were coming at it from a completely wrong perspective. Jesus had just finished doing this when we come to verse 34, which is where we're going to begin looking at this morning. Verse 34 of of Matthew chapter 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, who was an expert on the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, we might think from that question, well, that's a good question. I want to know what the most important one is. But notice his heart here. He was testing Jesus. This is yet another dilemma. Hey, Jesus... Pick a side. There are three hundred. I'm sorry. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Which one is the most important? And are you going to pick the vertical relationship with God, or are you going to pick the horizontal relationship with other people? Which direction is most important? Jesus recognizes that he's trying to catch him in something, and and he also recognizes that the focus of his question is way too narrow. And so Jesus' answer is once again one of those things that helps reframe the question. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And, and by the way, this would not have been something that was unfamiliar to the audience that day. This would not have been unfamiliar to any Jewish man, woman, or child in that day because that statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, comes directly out of the Shema, the most holy prayer of Jews, that they would pray in the morning and every evening. They knew it intimately. So he's not saying anything. And they might think, okay, so he's picking the vertical relationship. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what Jesus is saying to them, is listen, you cannot pick vertical or horizontal. It doesn't break down that way. Because in in our God's kingdom, you show love to the Father by loving His kids. You want to authenticate and demonstrate your love for God, then love the people around you. That's how it's done. And so what's the greatest commandment? Both. How do we do it? We love God by loving the people around us. And by the way, just in case you wondered, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament, all 613 rules, all of your traditions that have been trying to build fences around the law so people wouldn't break it so they could be more holy, so that somehow it would would kind of hurry up the day that the Messiah comes which is what they believed. which is why they were so zealous about protecting the law, by the way. They believed if they could get all of Israel to keep the law perfectly for just one day, the Messiah would come. Sadly, in the process, they completely missed the Messiah when he was standing right in front of them, but that's another story. Um, So Jesus is saying, listen, all of that, all 613 laws, all the traditions, all the rites, all the rituals, it all boils down to two. Love God, Love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, just in case you're curious who your neighbor is, he told him a parable at another conversation. He said there was a guy who was walking down the road. He gets mugged and left for dead. And one of the priests, one of the high religious people walking down the street, sees this guy mugged, thinks he might be dead, steps to the other side of the street and hurries on, either because he doesn't want to be made ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body, or... He doesn't want to get mugged by somebody up in the hills that might be just waiting for another person to come along. So too, a Levite, a deacon, in, the, in, their, in their jargon, is walking down. He sees the same thing. He steps to the other side of the street. He hurries on. And then, and then comes a lowly Samaritan, the lowest of the low in their society, the people that they would not even, they wouldn't even want to look upon. And this Samaritan person, he walks by, and when he sees this guy bleeding on the side of the road, he moves towards him, he helps him up, he sticks him onto his own donkey, he takes him to an inn, he pays for him to be cared for, and he says, hey, take care of every one of his needs. When I get back, I will make up the difference. And then Jesus looks at this guy who is, again, trying to test him, and he says, which one of these was a neighbor to that man? The guy goes, he can't even bring himself, by the way, to say the Samaritan. That just is... Yeah, that's not happening. So he says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus goes, yeah, i go and do likewise. In other words, who's your neighbor? Not just the people who look like you. Not just the people who think like you. Not just the people who vote like you. Not just the people who agree with you on whether you should kneel during the anthem. Anybody who has needs that you can meet is your neighbor. And this is a far cry, by the way, from the temple model, because the temple model is built, is built about, around rules. It's built around what is right, what is wrong, where's the line, how close can I get? Because rules, rules are really nice because they're impersonal. A rule is simply a line in the sand. And when it comes to temple-minded thinking, we go, okay, there's the rule. Don't get drunk, because I know the Bible says don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I can't get drunk, but how close can I get, you know? How many drinks can I have before I'm like right there? Because, you know, if I'm honest, I kind of like sin. I just, I just don't want to make God mad. So, you know, how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? The temple model mindset is very me-focused. It says, God, what do I need to do to make you happy with me so that you will do what I want you to do for me? Because at the end of the day, it's all about me. And Jesus said, flipped the script completely because when Jesus showed up, he said, uh-uh, 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 it's not about you. It is about the person beside you. If you're a Democrat, it's about the person to your right. If you're a Republican, it's about the person to your left. If you're a racist, it's about the person who looks differently than you do. It's from a different culture than you are from. That is who you're called to love. And so Jesus said things like this. Can we start throwing up? Give me, give me a couple of these verses. John fifteen twelve. Jesus said, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Next. Luke 6, This one's This one's not easy. Love your enemies. What? Love my enemy. Do good to those who hate you? I don't think so. Next. Galatians. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, all of the prophets, all of the rules boil down to loving your neighbor as yourself. As yourself and i, I, I kind of like myself it, it's kind of the golden rule like do for others what you would have them do for you that kind of is in that same line of thinking this is radically different from temple-minded thinking because the temple it's kind of easy to hide in the temple it's kind of easy to find a way to um find a loophole but it's really hard to find a loophole in this, isn't there? It's really hard. So, so let's just try this on for a second. We've been talking about this. I just want to, for, for a moment, throw out a couple of, of things, and let's see how it fits, okay? Do you know why you shouldn't lie? Why shouldn't we lie? Well, I think that our, our, our knee-jerk response would be because the Bible tells me to, right? God said... Do not lie. It's one of the top ten commandments. And you'd be absolutely right. And it's extremely important for us to spend time in God's word because this reveals his heart and this begins to help shape the compass of our, our, internal, our internal compass, our conscience, so that we can begin to recognize what is right and what is wrong. So it's terribly important for us to pay attention to his word. However, remember, temple-minded thinking is all about the rules, all about the world. This is the reason why. Why shouldn't I lie to somebody? Because the Bible tells me so is still temple-minded thinking. And Jesus would say, hold on a second. The reason that God put that in the top ten, the reason he said, thou shalt not lie, is because he knew that when we lie to somebody, we will hurt them. And so to lie isn't loving. In fact, it will tear down the fabric of a relationship because you will cease to trust the words of the person in front of you or, or they will cease to trust your word. So why shouldn't we lie? Sure, the Bible tells us so. But it tells us so because the heart of that command is love your neighbor as yourself. And it's really hard to love your neighbor as yourself when you don't even think they're worthy of the truth. And that anywhere that being honest with them would hurt you in some way, you're basically saying, me caring for you is secondary to what's best or most comfortable for me. So why shouldn't we lie? Because it's not loving. let's try this one. Why should we be generous? Oh, I know this one. Because the Bible says that if I give God a dollar, he'll give me ten. That works well, right? And I go, well, let's just remember the fact that we live in America. You already have your ten. In fact, you probably already have your hundred in the sense of from the perspective of the rest of the world. If you woke up this morning and it took you more than a second to figure out what to wear because you had more clothes in your closet than you could possibly wear in one day? If you had more food in your refrigerator than you could eat today, and if you had a refrigerator at all, then you are, by the standards of this world, rich. Of course, it doesn't seem like that here in Orange County, where everybody else is more rich than us, therefore we feel poor, but you get the point. Okay, well, how about this? The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver, and I want God to be good with me. I want him to be happy with me, so that's why I give. No, that's temple thinking. Yes, the Bible tells us to give, but the Bible tells us to give because God recognizes that our stuff has this tendency to grab hold of our heart, begin to get control on us. So one of the reasons why Jesus encourages us to give is because it is a way to loosen the grip of our stuff on us. But that's not the only reason. Because the other reason, and this is very profound, I know it's very, very complicated, so let's just see if it makes sense. When you are generous, it helps the person you're generous to. Okay. Why shouldn't we? Thank you. Why should we avoid gossip? Why should we avoid gossip? Mm. Because the Bible says, thou shalt not gossip. Okay. But why does it say that? Because when you gossip, you change the way other people perceive that person. That's not very loving. When you gossip, you tear somebody down in order to build yourself back up. Not very loving. Guys, we don't even need a verse to know that gossip hurts because we have experienced the pain of having people speak badly about us and talk about us. You've experienced that, so you don't even need a verse. Thankfully, there is verses that speak to this, but even if there wasn't, it's really hard to love your neighbor as yourself while you're tearing them down or while you're lying to their face or while you're being stingy. All right, let's try one more. Why should you not pressure your boyfriend or your girlfriend into having sex? Softballs today, right? Uh, why should we not pressure somebody into having sex? I know because the Bible says that sex is only for people who are married. One more you got for me, Eric? I heard this one, right? Or the reason I shouldn't have sex with my girlfriend or force her to have sex is because God says it's sin, and if I sin, then he's not going to bless me, and I really want him to bless me. No, 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 that's temple thinking. That is going, God, what do I have to do to make you happy with me so that you'll give me what I want? That's turning him into a cosmic vending machine. That's not who he is. And that is completely unrelational. And we have a very relational God who is all about our relationship with him and all about our relationship with one another. It matters to him. So why shouldn't we pressure our boyfriend or our girlfriend into having sex with us? Because when you pressure anybody to do anything against their will, you create a sadness, a a regret. And as sons and daughters of God who represent him, as people who are part of this beautiful movement, We don't ever want to be the kind of person that somebody thinks about when they think about their greatest regret, do we? When they go to counseling later on in life, you don't want to be the name that's on their lips. When they're having that conversation with their fiancé about, and they're trying to figure out, okay, how far do I go? How much do I share about my sexual past? You do not want to be one of the things that they have to scrape up the courage to confess. Because pressuring somebody to do anything is not loving your neighbor. That's loving yourself at your neighbor's expense, right? Oh, but Eric, it's consensual. All right, you got me. No, not really. A couple, days, or a couple weeks ago, I came home. And this has a point, so just bear with me here. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I came home, and I found e- Grayson, my youngest, my six-year-old, kind of in a fetal position on the ground And Ethan is standing over him with a pillow, just wailing away on my six-year-old, right? And both of them are giggling their heads off because they got their daddy's DNA. They like physical violence. And that is their love language. My wife had no idea what she was signing up for when she married me. And I go, Ethan, as I always, you know, Ethan, stop. And Ethan kind of goes, what? And he looks at me with this look like, why? I mean, he, he, he likes it. He said I could. I go, yeah, yeah, but Ethan, you're going to hurt him. You don't realize your strength. And whether he likes it now or not, in just a moment, he's going to start crying. And you're going to feel really bad that you've hurt him. And he's not going to be so happy about it at that point. So stop. Okay. Why should we avoid having premarital sex with somebody who is not our spouse? Because sex is powerful. It is, but it was designed by God to act like spiritual superglue, to bind two people together in a covenantal relationship for a lifetime. But when we treat that casually, when we bond and we rip, leaving pieces of our soul with them and we bond and we rip with somebody else and we leave pieces of ourselves there, we take little pieces of them with us. bond and rip and bond and rip and bond and rip. Something that is incredibly powerful can also be incredibly destructive. So why should we avoid having premarital sex? Because God designed it to unite you. And by the way, if you're like, but yeah, we're, we're engaged. We're good. Oh, you got me again. Not really. Because I can't tell you how many times I've sat down in a, in a counseling session with a couple. And by the way, if you ever want to go and get premarital with me, one of my goals is for me to see if I can get you to break up. That is my obligation to you. Because if I can, then you have no right getting married. And it's not, I'm not actually literally trying to break you up, but I'm trying to bring up the things that are going to be an issue. And if they become such a great issue that you go, you know what, it's in our best interest, and in the best interest of everybody around us for not to get married, great. But I cannot tell you how many times when I sit down with a couple who is already playing house, who are already basically living as if they are married, It doesn't matter how many red flags there may be. They can't see them because they're thinking with their emotions. They're thinking with that physical intimacy that they've already experienced. And I I hate to say it, but I I have married couples that are no longer married. And I don't ever want that to happen. And so that's it. Okay, I'm done with that. You get it. But you, get, you see, the reason behind all of these is not the Bible tells me so, although the Bible does tell us in many ways so. The heart behind it is, is this loving? And we don't necessarily even need a verse some of these times to know whether it's loving or not. Going back, let me, let me just... Finish up the story with Ethan and Grayson in the pillow for a second. Because I I, I kid you not, I, I walk out of the room, I go into the kitchen, it's not two minutes, I hear Grayson start crying. I run back in, what happened? Grayson's holding his face. Ethan's kind of standing there like, oh, what happened, Ethan? I threw a pillow at him. Ethan, I just told you not to do that. No, you didn't. You told me not to hit him. I didn't hit him, I threw it. This happens regularly in our household. I've got a future attorney in the making. And I'm thinking, do I need to spell it out for you? Was it not enough for me to say, don't hit your brother with a pillow? Obviously, now I need to say, don't hit him, don't throw it, don't kick it at him. But isn't that the same way that we play with God, particularly when we come with temple-minded thinking? God, what's the rule? Where where does it say in the Bible not to do this? Because if I don't see it, then I can pretty much do it. Because I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says not to make fun of my friends or the new kid with my friends online, right? Because online wasn't invented yet when Jesus wrote the Bible. Jesus didn't write the Bible, by the way. But, But you get the point. It's not in there. So I can do it and we can we can make excuses all day long and we can begin to build a Gerrymandered theology in which we have cut out space for sin to reside in our hearts and in our actions And feel totally justified because we haven't broken the law. We haven't crossed the line Jesus doesn't give us that option Because with love, it's less about an external rule, and it's much more about the internal heart of it. And he keeps calling us back time and time again to the heart of why God instituted the law in the first place. And I believe that God sometimes looks down at us and goes, Seriously? Do you need me to spell it out? Or is love your neighbor as yourself not clear enough? Because it's really, really easy to find places to hide in the temple. It's really easy to find loopholes. It's really easy to explain away bad behavior by, well, I haven't really broken any rules, at least my interpretation of them. And by the way, guys, when I'm standing up here talking about love, it's not like Christian Woodstock, okay? I'm not going, hey, we're throwing out the rules. It's all about love, man. None of that. Because it may, Jesus' way, the way of love, may be more simple, but it is infinitely more demanding. I mean, let's just look at a couple of these verses here. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what was his mindset? Although, being in very nature God, he did not consider himself. To be equal. He didn't take hold of that. He didn't try to be equal with God. Instead, he took on the posture of a servant. And he submitted himself even to death on a cross for us. Had the same posture as Christ. Next one. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. And how did Jesus love? When he saw a leper on the side of the road. The kind of person that people would go to the other side of the road to avoid He not only moved towards him, he touched him in a humanizing way. He healed him, but he also healed that part of his heart that felt less than human. He washed his disciples' feet. And ultimately, he gave his life so that we could live. That's how he loved us. And he said, now that I've shown you how to love, it's your turn. Next. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, this flies in the face of what everybody in society would say. No, you hate the people who hate you. You hate them better than they hate you, so they won't hate you as much anymore. They will fear you. It's better to be feared than to be loved. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Last one. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. merciful. You've been shown mercy. So when other people mess up, and they will mess up, when other people disappoint you, and they will disappoint you, you show them mercy. Guys, there is no loophole to this. There is no way to work around this because at the end of the day, it doesn't give us a line in the sand and say, don't cross this, and we can like, try to find ways to skirt around it or get as close to the edge as we can without falling off. This goes right to the heart of our heart, right to the heart of our motives. Why am I treating this person this way? And my guess is, if you have spent any time in God's Word, and this is tremendously important, because this reveals our Father's heart to us. You want to know what He's about? You want to see the things that matter to Him? Spend some time with Him. The Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts, begins to kind of knock off some of those rough edges. And as he does that, as he begins to shape our hearts to be more of a reflection, not a perfect reflection, but more of a reflection of him and of Jesus Christ, then my guess is that in any given situation, if you spent any amount of time kind of going, all right, God, I'm really hurt about this and I don't know how to respond. What should I do? And if you actually gave him some space to speak into your life, my guess is that at the end of a little bit of time, of giving him some space to speak into your life, you would know the answer to this question. What does love require of me? In this given situation, what's my play? So my buddies are um, making fun of the new kid, and I want to be liked by them. Oh, I want to be accepted. I don't want them to turn on me. I can't be very fun to be that kid, though. Seriously, Charlie? I'm not done. Probably shouldn't have. That wasn't very loving. <laughs> but it was fun. What does love require of me? I'm seriously undermining the entire point I'm trying to get across, right? <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. Almost done. What does love require of me? There. What does li- will love require of me when, when my neighbors are a pain in the you-know-what and I just, I just want to give them a taste of their own medicine? And what does love require of me? What does love require of me for that one person in my life that just keeps getting under my skin and man, have they hurt me. And man, do I want to hold on to my anger. Man, do I want to pay them back. It feel so good if I could. What does love require of me? Think for just a moment about a person or a group of people in your life that for you is that thorn under your skin person that you don't want to forgive, a person that you don't want to have anything to do with. just And then consider the question. What does love require of you in regards to that person right now? Probably something that you need to consider this week. Probably something you need to sit with for a while. I, I doubt that you may know automatically. You may know. My guess is there's a part of your flesh that doesn't want to listen, so it's, not, it's having a hard time. It's fighting back even right now considering some of the options that might be coming up. But what does love require of us? Because could you imagine, just for a minute, what our homes would be like if that was the filter through which we made our decisions. That, if that was the filter through which when we think about our wife or our husband, when we we're in a fight with them, what if our thinking is, what does love require of me right now? What would it, how would it change the way we parent if we considered, what does love require of me before we disciplined? How would it change our neighborhoods, our city, if the if the people who love Jesus who have been saved by him who have been forgiven of so much turned around and reflected that same love by saying God, what what does love require of me with the neighbors that don't have any, don't want anything to do with us with the people who think so radically different from me politically theologically the people who Leave their stuff everywhere and don't consider other people. What does it look like? And even if they're not going to change, what does love require of me? Because at the end of the day, we can never control somebody else. All we can do is control our choices, our actions. So what does love require of you? One last thought. I would imagine that somewhere in these last four weeks as we've been talking, some of you have been going, well, Eric, what about God? I mean, we're here to worship God, and you keep saying, hey, don't worry about God. God is fine with you. Be concerned about the people around you. I kind of feel like you're just downplaying him, that you're dishonoring him. I mean, even a couple weeks ago, you said if you're going to go offer you know, a, a, an offering to God and you realize that somebody's got something against you, if you're coming to church and you're bringing your tithe and you realize, man, you got in a fight with your neighbor the other day, turn around, go back, and reconcile with that individual. Or you get in a fight with your sweetie on the way in. Your kids are kind of, uh, go drop them off across the street. Go back in your car. Maybe go get coffee or just sit in your car and work it out before you come into church. Seriously, Eric? What about God? What about glorifying him? It's a good question. Thankfully, Jesus answered it. If you've got a Bible, go with me to Matthew chapter 25 just for a moment. We're, We're wrapping up here. But I want us to see this. Because this is really, really important. Where's God in this? How do we honor God in the midst of caring for the people around us? Jesus is talking to his disciples, kind of about the end time stuff. How's it all going to play out? When's it going to end? What's it going to look like? And all that kind of stuff. And Jesus says this to them. When the son of man comes, and son of man is a term that Jesus used to, to speak about himself because he didn't want to use super mess, uh, messianic terms. He didn't want to be, get people all excited and stuff because they had their own ideas of what those terms meant. And so we grabbed one that was less known, was less used in that day. When the son of man comes in his glory, there's our word, glory, yes, and all the angels are with him, and he, he will sit on his glorious throne. Awesome, okay. Jesus, how do we glorify you? And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And we're going, okay, this would have made a lot of sense to the people in Jesus' day because they had sheep and goats all over. They intermixed. You're like, well, which one is which? And he would separate them out. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. It would be like us saying he would separate the Republicans from the Democrats, whichever way you want to go on that. And he says to those on his right, the sheep, he says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And right now, all of this group are going, yes, we made it. We made the cut. And now the king is going to explain why they made the cut. He says, for I was hungry. And you gave me something to eat. And they're thinking, do you remember that? I don't know. When did that happen? I don't know. I was thirsty. And you gave me something to drink. You saw Jesus thirsty. Did you give him? No, he wasn't me. Okay? I was a stranger and you invited me in. When was Jesus here? Why didn't you tell me? I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. Jesus gets sick, I guess. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Jesus. And so then at this point, they kind of scrape up the courage and go, well, the righteous will answer him, Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? Because the closest I feel like I've come to seeing you, Jesus, was at one time when the... the band was playing that one song that really speaks so powerfully to me you know the one i'm talking about and i just felt like when they were playing it i just felt so close to you or or maybe it was that one time up at that camp where man it's like you got a hold of my heart and i felt so intimately connected with you in that moment or maybe it was the time that I went to, to Israel and I was standing on the Mount of Olives right where you stood and I was reading the passage about when you were standing in that same spot and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's like I'm with him right now. And Jesus will say, so any of those things you've just listed, those moments where you felt closest to me, who were those for? Who got the most out of that? Well, me, I guess. Verse 40. And then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Our love for God is authenticated and demonstrated by the way we love the people around us. You remember how at the beginning I said that Do you want to really love on me than love on my boys? Jesus feels the same way. Do you want to love him? you love the people around us? you love his kids? That's what he's called us to do. And so this week, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward this week. I want to encourage you to ask yourself the question that has been just wrecking me this week. Because all week, In any given situation I find myself, and I keep running this question in my head, what does love require of me when I'm talking with my sweetie, when I'm parenting my boys, when I'm hanging with my friends, when I'm all by myself and no one else is around, what does love require of me right now? My guess is, That if we begin to allow that question to shape us, if we begin to approach Scripture with that same question, it'll take on a whole new feel, a whole new dynamic as you read this. Because the filter through which Jesus invites His kids to approach Him is with the filter of love. He's called us to be a reflection of that. So this week, may we, Lighthouse Community Church, Reflect his love to the people we come into contact with, even if they do not reciprocate. What does love require of you? Father, we come before you right now and we just ask that you would be glorified in our lives. We want to be a reflection of your love. And God, you are intimately familiar with the things we've carried in with us today. There are some of us who are hurting deeply right now. And there are some of us who are just so grateful that you love us enough that despite what we've done, you accept us in. And you call us your sons and your daughters. And Father God, I thank you that you have not just adopted us as your kids and say, now you're mine and you're with me. But then you turn us around and you say, now go and be an ambassador of that same love to others. And so I, I look around me. I look beyond the walls of this church down to the Ava apartments over there and to Ruby and Paul and Beth and others down Rochester over here. People who would never necessarily be willing to step foot into church. May you now fill us up and send us to go be the church beyond the walls of this building. Because it's not about this place. It's about you. And I thank you so much that you invite us to be a part of that. Now, Father, we, we bring the things that are heavy on us. And if there is anybody in here right now who is just feeling heavy and burdened and you want somebody to come alongside you, I'm going to ask some of our pastors, Jeff, if you and um, Jen will be in back there, if a couple of the elders will come up front here, Kathy and I will be up here. If you need prayer for any reason, I guess I'm kind of done praying. Amen. Um, if, you, if you want prayer, come up or go to the back. Let's just worship our God, a God who says, I love you. Now go and love as a reflection of my heart in you.